Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producer on vacation. Clark Hilton, today's engineer. Today we're going to talk with Noelle Maring. She's the author of Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. She'll be joining us later this hour. We're also going to wind our way through the latest with regard to what's happening in Afghanistan and elsewhere. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. The United States Capitol Police locked down or evacuated portions of the Capitol this morning to respond to reports of a suspicious vehicle near the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. The USPS or USCP, the United States Capitol Police, called it an active bomb threat investigation. The House Republican communications director on the scene confirmed confirmed uh, that the police have warned them about a man in the area of Independence Avenue and First Street who was claiming to have explosives in his truck. Well, according to the source, law enforcement sent a negotiator to the area. The FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives w- responded. Well, during the midday press briefing, um, uh, shortly after this whole thing began, um, the uh, chief of police, Thomas Manger, said police received a report at about 9.15 a.m. of a man in a black pickup truck who drove onto the sidewalk in front of the Library of Congress. Police responded to a call for a disturbance. Well, the driver of the truck told the responding officer on the scene that he had a bomb and what appeared, the officer said, appeared to be a detonator in his hand. We immediately evacuated the nearby buildings, Manger said. Well, they also said law enforcement was in communication with the suspect but didn't yet know know his motive. They, in fact, gave him a phone so they could communicate. He didn't answer a question regarding a live stream posted by an alleged suspect. Well, the police, um, the Capitol Police announced the suspicious activity on its Twitter page at about 940 a.m. local time, urging people to stay away from the area. They investigated reports of a possible explosive inside the truck in the area and the um, uh, individual in the truck suggested there were explosives elsewhere as well. Investigators tried to determine whether the suspicious device in the pickup truck was operable as an explosive and whether the man in the truck was holding a detonator. Well, the suspect to whom authorities uh, say claimed to have had that bomb in his truck this morning surrendered to police this afternoon and is in their custody hours after parking his vehicle in front of a Washington, D.C., a very famous location, the Library of Congress. That prompted evacuations and lockdowns in the area. The suspect, identified as North Carolina resident Floyd Ray Roseberry from Grover, was taken into custody at about 2.15 p.m. local time, approximately five hours after police received the report of the suspicious vehicle parked in the area of Independence Avenue. Federal and local investigators have already visited his North Carolina home uh, to search for further evidence. Well, the U.S. Capitol uh, Chief Thomas Manger told reporters that Roseberry got out of his vehicle, was taken into custody without incident shortly after negotiators delivered a phone to him so that they could communicate. 
Uh, Manger said Roseberry had recently experienced losses of family and said investigators were in contact with his loved ones. We don't know if there are any explosives in the vehicle. It's still an active scene. My guess is they know by now. I just don't have that information. And while Mr. Roseberry has been taken into custody and has been removed from the scene, we still have to search the vehicle and render it safe. Well, earlier in the day, an active bomb threat investigation was, in fact, taken very seriously. It has since been diffused. Well, in other news, Governor Kate Brown announced a vaccine mandate for K through 12 school staff and volunteers and healthcare workers in Oregon. The update comes as the state deals with a surge in new COVID-19 cases and record breaking hospitalizations. According to the governor, all K through 12 employees and volunteers and healthcare workers will be required to get fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by the 18th of October or six weeks after the vaccine gets full FDA approval, whichever is later. The requirement means unvaccinated healthcare workers will no longer have the option to get tested for COVID-19. Well, the governor said the vaccine mandate for school staff and volunteers is an important step to protect students. Kids under the age of 12 are not yet eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. The governor also outlined steps that Oregon's taking to help hospitals overwhelmed by growing numbers of COVID-19 patients. She's formed a hospital crisis prevention and response group. It's made up of healthcare stakeholders who are going to suggest new measures to help hospitals. The state will establish temporary decompression units to free up bed space. Oregon has also requested federal resources and support from FEMA and the Biden administration. The update came one day after the Portland Public Schools announced all employees there will be required to get fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by the 13th of August. That, of course, has come and gone unless they have an approved exemption. We will need confirmation from a qualified medical care provider of on any medical exemption, and we will be reviewing that each a religious exemption that is requested is based on bona fide beliefs. Portland Public School Chief Human Rights Human Resource Officer Sharon Reese said in a statement, well, Portland Public School employees who are unable to get vaccinated for personal health reasons or those who do not provide proof of full vaccination will be required to get tested for COVID-19. A Portland Public Schools has not said exactly how often employees will be tested. Now, it seems to me that that is uh, no longer the prevailing view, given the fact that the governor says K through 12 school staff, health care workers will be required to get vaccinated against COVID-19. And apparently testing is not an option for those health care workers who prior to the vaccine uh, were considered heroes. They now, now may be considered deadbeats for not getting the vaccine. The governor insists they have. Well, since the start of the pandemic through the 18th of August 2021, a total of 361 children ages 0 to 17 have died of COVID-involved disease. That's based on death certificates submitted so far to the CDC's National Center for Human Statistics. Now, those 361 children represent 0.0587 percent of the total 615,531 COVID deaths in the United States. Well, the CDC says that the National Center for Health Statistics doesn't track health conditions that may have contributed to the deaths of children in that specific 0 to 17 age group, although it does track comorbidities in the broader 0 to 24 age group based on information from death certificates, which we presume are reliable. We know early on there was some controversy over who was designated as having died of COVID and not. 
In the uh, 0 to 24 age group, which mixes adults with school-age children, the most prevalent comorbidities listed on death certificates are respiratory illness, influenza or pneumonia, obesity, diseases of the circulatory system, and sepsis. Well, most reported cases uh, of COVID-19 in children under the age of 18 are asymptomatic or mild. However, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says hospitalization rates for children, while far lower than that of adults, are increasing in school-age children ages 5 to 17. Now, some of these children are at risk of severe COVID, CDC says, particularly those with underlying medical conditions. Well, according to CDC's website, and I'm quoting, children with underlying medical conditions are at increased risk for severe illness compared to children without underlying medical conditions. Current evidence on which um, underlying medical conditions Conditions in children are associated with increased risk is limited. Current evidence suggests that children with medical complexity, with genetic, neurological, metabolic conditions, or with congenital heart disease can be at increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19. Similar to adults, children with obesity, diabetes, asthma, or chronic lung disease, sickle cell disease, or immunosuppression can also be at increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up for the final two segments of this hour, we're going to talk with Noel uh, Maring, author of Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. She'll be joining us uh, later in the program. Well, a, widened, a Biden White House memo before the Taliban takeover sought to lift protections for Americans trapped abroad. The administration moved in June to dismantle a system designed to protect American citizens trapped abroad just months before the Taliban took over Afghanistan, stranding thousands in the Central Asian country. Uh, the June 11th memo sent around the State Department that gave the green light to the discontinuation of the establishment of the ter- and the termination of the Contingency and Crisis Response Bureau. The sensitive but unclassified memo was signed by Deputy Secretary of State Brian McKean just a couple of months before the Biden administration botched the troop withdrawal that saw Afghanistan fall under Taliban control in record time. The CCR was formed under the Trump-era Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was tasked with providing aviation, logistics and medical support capabilities for the department's operational bureaus, thereby enhancing the secretary's ability to protect American citizens overseas in connection with overseas evacuations in the aftermath of a natural or man-made disaster. While the bureau could have played a role in the response to the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, where thousands of American citizens and allies are trapped behind terrorist line. Now, short of that, um, Arranging this properly, where you evacuate civilians first, evacuate whatever equipment you're planning to get rid of, and then uh, the military would not have required uh, that Contingency and Crisis Response Bureau, but that's a whole nother story. In other developments, President Biden says as many as 15,000 Americans are looking to flee Afghanistan, although they don't have a hard number. The president says ongoing chaos there it was priced into the withdrawal decision during an ABC interview. And Geraldo Rivera hits the uh, president for his pitiful speech as Af- Afghanistan crumbles, uh, asking um, what COVID had to do with it because the president gave a speech rather than um, mentioning Afghanistan on a COVID booster shot. 
The Biden administration's finger pointing over the Taliban fiasco just accelerated and Afghans are pleading for faster U.S. evacuation from the Taliban rule. A California suspect is dead and two police officers were wounded a day after a sheriff's deputy was shot. The suspect linked uh, to an ambush shooting of the Southern California sheriff's deputy earlier this week was killed Wednesday after getting into a shootout with police that left two officers wounded, authorities said. Well, the officers with the San Bernardino Police SWAT unit were attempting to take the unidentified suspect into custody in connection with the deputy shooting just before 3.40 p.m. when gunfire erupted. Two of uh, our officers were shot, said the uh, San Bernardino Police Lieutenant Michelle Mahan. Both of them were able to speak at the time, uh, our own officers transporting them to a local hospital. The suspect, who had been under surveillance for several hours on Wednesday, was pronounced dead at the scene. The incident occurred in the city of Highland, 66 miles east of Los Angeles. The officer's injuries were not disclosed, but they are expected to survive. The incident came a day after a San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputy was shot while trying to pull over a motorist. The deputy was uh, fired upon as he turned a corner during a brief car chase, authorities said. He remained hospitalized in stable condition. In other developments, a California deputy was ambushed in a shooting as the suspect was lying in wait, according to police. The New York City hatchet attack suspect is under evaluation after being arrested. And California deputies say a woman is safe after a possible kidnapping was caught on alarming video. Florida prosecutors are seeking the death penalty for the accused Daytona Beach cop killer. Well, Chicago Mayor Lightfoot tied the hands of police. So says the dad of a badly wounded police officer. The father of a wounded Chicago police officer called out Mayor Lori Lightfoot on Wednesday, saying police changes at the city's police department gave bad guys an upper hand against law enforcement. Carlos Yanes Sr., himself a retired city police officer, said his son Carlos was suffering serious injuries in a shootout with suspects earlier this month that also resulted in the death of Officer Ella French and other officers who were told that they could not draw their weapons unless the situation warrants it, Chicago Sun-Times reported. They didn't do that when I was on the job, he told the paper. They let us be police. There wasn't a day that I didn't draw my weapon, have it behind my leg or behind my thigh, he said. He told the paper that he didn't want Lightfoot to visit his son in the hospital because his son was no fan, to put it mildly. The mayor's office did not uh, respond to any after-hours uh, emails for a response. On the 7th of August, Giannez and French, who was 29, exchanged fire with suspects during a traffic stop. French's death was the first fatal shooting of a Chicago officer in the line of duty since 2018 and put a new focus on gun violence in the city. On that same weekend, at least 64 others were shot, including 10 fatally. In other developments, Chicago mourns the slain police officer Ella French as her brother details how she loved her city. Another Chicago officer who was injured in the shooting that killed Ella French speaks out for the very first time. And a Chicago man has been arrested after uh, ramming two police officers, dragging one with his car for 40 feet. A Chicago expressway shooting killed a special ed teacher, 67, heading home from a White Sox game. President Biden's accuser, Tara Reid, has threatened to take legal action against The Washington Post, saying, I'm fighting back. And a Washington state man claims hospitals are refusing transplants to the unvaccinated. A Cedar Point guest was struck by a small metal object from a roller coaster. And a White House, uh, dub, the White House rather, has doubled down on Vice President uh, Harris's 
Asia trip amid the Afghan crisis, saying there are many interests around the world. Well, TSA has extended the mask mandate through January. Democrat lawmakers are pushing the Federal Trade Commission to probe Tesla over a misleading autopilot system. And a federal judge threw out U.S. approval of a ConocoPhillips Alaska oil project. Fidelity says retirement accounts balances have hit a record for the third straight quarter. A record high, that is. And an Ohio man pled guilty to running a $300 million Bitcoin money laundering service. Multiple people in intelligence say they warned President Biden this could happen. And according to Jim Garrity, he ignored all of their advice and simply chose to lie to the American public, end quote. From the Wall Street Journal, the president's top generals, including chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Mark Milley, urged Mr. Biden to keep a force of about 2,500 troops the size he inherited while seeking a peace agreement between warring Afghan factions to help maintain stability. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who previously served as a military commander in the region, said a full withdrawal wouldn't provide any insurance against instability. A long thread from Matt Zeller details the horror of what is happening on the ground in Afghanistan. He begins, it boggles my mind as to how they can possibly just now be this concerned. We've been warning them over and over again for seven months daily. Next to completely abandoning them, this is our nightmare scenario. Dan Crenshaw points out State Department was in charge of civilian evacuations. They failed miserably and continue to fail. When the dust settles, it's hard to see how Secretary Blinken should still have a job. Well, President Biden has responded to Afghans falling from planes trying to escape the Taliban, saying, well, that was four days ago. He said it like a man explaining that was 200 years ago. ABC's George Stepanopoulos asked, we've seen those hundreds of people packed in the C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. Biden then cut him off with that was four days ago, five days ago. From Beckett Adams, what does this have to do with the fact that Afghans are literally dying to escape Taliban rule? What does this have to do with the fact thousands of frenetic U.S. nationals and Afghan allies are scrambling to evacuate as the Taliban consolidates control? They're scrambling, by the way, because the Biden administration had the bright idea to shutter Bagram Airfield, evacuate U.S. military before civilians and allies and designate an international airport surrounded by the Taliban as the sole evacuation point for the entire country. By the way, it only has one uh, runway. Second, it was actually only two days ago. The photos Stephanopoulos referenced are from two days ago. Biden's interview uh, took place on Wednesday. The photo circulated widely on Monday. Hugh Hewitt weighs in. Release all of the interview unedited. The American people deserve to see it all. So do our allies. A family mourns the death of their 17-year-old son who fell from the plane and has now been identified. And Senator Tom Cotton called the response unbelievable. Liz Cheney says a truly ignorant and shameful performance by an American president. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Noelle Maring. She's the author of Awake. Not woke, the Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the woke movement is escalating and now commands the focus of most American life and claims to be the sole authority and path to fighting oppression and injustice in areas of gender and race and sexuality. 
But many sense that there's something unjust about this social movement. It's rooted in victim mentality, the shame based education in schools, the removal of historical statues, the people and books targeted by the cancel culture. My next guest, Noel Maring, the author of Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology, believes the woke movement has created a crisis of a victim mob mentality by elevating three key elements, the group over the person, human will over reason and human power over true authority. Well, in the faith community and secular society, it's become its own religion, void of justice, mercy, and certainly void of Christ that threatens any road to friendship. She examines the history, the influencers, and the tactics of the woke ideology uh, in her book, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Noel Herring, Maring rather, is a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She writes regularly on the topic of politics, culture, and religion, and has a background in philosophy as well as home design. She is the co-author of Theology of Home 1 and 2 and a frequent contributor for National Catholic Register, The American Mind, The Federalist, and Catholic World Report. She is an editor for TheologyofHome.com and lives in Southern California with her husband and six children. Today joining us to talk about her book, Awake, Not Woke. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great to be with you. I know a lot of people are very frustrated by what they're witnessing, but don't quite know how to put their finger on it, how to define it, or know what to do about it. Tell us a bit about what your book is designed to do for those who recognize we are in a calamitous season, uh, but don't quite know where to begin. Well, I think you articulated that well, that what's happening is that there's a lot of people that are very confused by what's happening, and understandably so. I do think that this movement really operates on a lot, creating a lot of confusion. And so what I really want to do with the book is just to help bring some clarity to something that feels very fraught. People understand that there's something amiss, but they don't know how to put their finger on it. Um, And so I wanted to write this book to help bring clarity, and I tried to do that first and foremost by going through the historical genealogy of the intellectual mm-hmm. movement behind undergirding it, but then also trying to understand the, the, the ruling principles of the movement. What's the internal logic of what it means to be woke? For example, why does Black Lives Matter want to also queer the culture and disrupt the nuclear family? What do those things have to do with one another in the mind of the woke? And so I came up with this, um, these three dogmas, these three distortions that you started out with, and I really think that felt to me like the key to understanding how they operate and what they want. Is there a clear, well-defined movement? Because I know sometimes you will talk with someone who holds and subscribes to this uh, worldview and they will describe it in a rather innocuous way. When, in fact, if you actually read the documentation, you trace, trace the history as you've done in your book, you see that there are some very specific things that are being advocated for here. I think that contributes to the confusion. Is there a clearly defined movement, what it means to be woke, uh, what uh, intersectionality means, what um, uh, critical race theory means? Well, that's a great point you just made. And I I think that adds to a lot of the confusion because it really operates on taking some good Christian precepts, uh, such as walk with the marginalized, fight fight injustice, things that are good and that every goodwill person should strive to do. But then it introduces, and but in this sort of a concealed way, a whole host of ideologies about the truths of human nature, whether or not our bodily reality is indicative of who we are as a human person, um, and these sorts of things. And what defines a human person, such as, are we defined by the love of God, or are we defined by the hatred of society? Are we defined in a negative way or in a positive way? Um, 
but I, I, I think that you're, you point to something true, which is that, you know, there's a difference between what that, that maybe your, your woke Aunt Susan or your neighbor down the street thinks and what the actual movement says. And so reading the actual literature from Marx to Marcusa to Kimberly Crenshaw, you see that it's far more radical in principle than what uh, the person you might know down the street believes it to be. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to understand what that radical movement actually says, because I do think that they are driving the energy of the movement and keeps pulling it further and further to the left, almost imperceptibly to the people who are kind of um, captivated by it. We're talking about the book Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. You spend three chapters in the early part of your book on the origins of uh, what it means to be woke. <laughs> so let's begin there to, to, you know, again, you spend three chapters. We have a few minutes. Let's begin at the origins. What is the, the movement that we're now witnessing that's permeating um, our, our institutions, uh, education and much more? Well, I think it's a combination of multiple old heresies, such as you know, ancient view of Gnosticism, that our bodies don't matter. Um, but the, historically, you know, I started in the Garden of Eden with, you know, the, the, the uh, desire to not serve, um, the self-deification movement. Um, but historically, I, start, I started with Marx and Hegel and then go through how the German Marxists really brought this movement into the United States in 1935 when they established what's called the Frankfurt School adjunct, adjacent to Columbia University, with the goal really to spread Marxism beyond being a movement about economic oppression into a cultural movement about other areas of oppression, identitarian areas of oppression based on race, sexuality, gender, and then to infiltrate multiple uh, institutions within America from the academy to Hollywood to media to politics, um, and, and to corporate America eventually, and, and to seed this revol- as an ideology of revolution throughout all of these institutions quietly and in, in, with a long game in, 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 uh, in, 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 as a goal, and eventually that these ideas would take over and take control over our society almost without us knowing it. So it's sort of a bloodless revolution. Yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it. Now, what's your response to those who believe that being woke is required in order to address and overcome racism, uh, which exists quite differently than it did in, in my parents' time and my grandparents' time, uh, and hatred toward the oppressed? I mean, the, the end game is that we're going to eliminate, although this isn't how they would put it, we're going to eliminate racism, we're going to address it and expose it, and therefore it's going to dissipate. While in the process, of course, we are imposing racism and establishing groups that are perpetual victims who can never per- forgive their uh, perpetual oppressors. Um, what is your response to those who believe that this is the approach that uh, that we ought to take because this is the popular approach? I would say a couple of things. First of all, I would say it's absolutely important to fight injustice and, uh, and to know the history of injustice. I think those two are very important things. Secondly, you cannot fight a racist movement with with uh, uh, doubling down on racism. And this this is what the new anti-racism mm-hmm. movement says. It's a rejection of the old civil rights movement of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and, and it's not even just reverse racism. It's actually explicit racism. So you'll have established woke, you know, um, DEI training that has on record said, for example, that hard work is a white virtue. Being on time is a white virtue. Uh, rational thought, politeness are white virtues. These are incredibly racist statements. And they get away with it by saying, well, we're just pointing to the fact that we have to think differently about these things. However, what they're doing is creating a lot of despair and discouragement among the very people that they're aiming to help. If I was told that because of my skin color, I was less capable of being on time for something, you know, first of all, I mean, that would be infuriating, but I think it would eventually make me feel discouraged and and prone to despair. Um, 
And so I think what it does is it strips people of the sort of moral agency that is the absolute foundation for achieving responsibility and success in life. And the first thing any leadership training tells people to do is to say, you know, what can I do? What do I have control over today? What can I change in my day? What can I improve in my life? But that, that requires an understanding that your, your success and failure in life has something to do with yourself and your freedom and not systemic forces that are outside of yourself that you have no control over. Well, I will tell you as a black American, I haven't gotten to the despair part, but infuriating, I think, is the right way to explain how insulting it is. Some of the things that are being said by uh, by this movement, uh, we need to take a quick break, but I uh, will return to continue my conversation with Noelle Maring. Her book, Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Noelle Maring. She's the author of Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. Let me ask you, um, you write about the, the fact that the woke prioritize a group over an individual. Now, how does this go against our God-given identity. First, explain how this priority um, works itself out and, and compare that to a Christian worldview and uh, our God-given identity. Sure. So, uh, you, know, you know, people are meant to be in groups, group, that, that we are social people. But what the woke do is that they reduce the human person into being a totem or an instantiation of, an, of a group. Um, and it really is diminishing of the human person. So, for example, like in 2017, when there was a women's march, the first women's march, there was a group of pro-life feminists who wanted to march with them. Mm-hmm. They were disavowed of having any official affiliation. Um, and it's because they define womanhood based on oppression. And so if at the very core of womanhood is, an, is a, a, a fighting against a need demand to fight against your oppression. And abortion is the first and foremost symbol of that fight then a pro-life woman is in some way, according to their definition, not living out her womanhood. Um, but it goes even deeper than that, which is, uh, I, you know, I do believe that as Christians, we are called to understand that we are defined by the love of God, and that implies a mission that we are to go out in the world and spread the good news to other people that they are loved. The woke defined a human person based not on the love of God, but on the hatred of society, which implies a sort of anti-gospel message, which is that they are to go out and spread the bad news to the people that they are actually hated or that they are haters. Um, so these are really antithetical messages and antithetical definitions of what it is to be a person. And I think the woke is incredibly diminishing of, of the dignity and also the, the higher call of the human person. You write that critical thinking has been overturned by critical theory. Can you define the difference between the two and the dangers that are involved? Sure. So they have two uh, different purposes. The purpose of a critical thinking is to arrive at the truth. And so if the goal is the truth, then you invite objections to your position. You invite criticism because you want to hone and also see where you have blind spots and maybe course correct in what and how you're thinking. The goal of critical theory is not truth, but power and activism it's for the sake of change in society. Um, and, and so that, 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 that implies very different um, means. So, for example, the critical theorist does not invite criticism and actually silences criticism because the greatest threat to domination is to someone or, or to something that's essentially based on a lie, not because it doesn't, it's not concerned fundamentally with the truth. And so its greatest threat is somebody dissenting, is someone arguing against it. Um, and, and it also implies that you can, you can silence people who dissent, groups that you can that dissent. You can put a muzzle on people and you can create a megaphone 
for the voices that are furthering your political agenda. You're not speaking truth, you're seeking power. Now, to talk a bit about uh, the use of the word authentic in the woke culture, because I think all of us as followers of Jesus, you want to be authentic and genuine, but it's used differently in the woke culture. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that was one actually one of the more fascinating parts of my research is that authenticity, uh, according to the progressive way it's used, is built uh, connected to this. The Frankfurt School guys were neo-Marxists, but they're also neo-Freudians. And what that implied is that they advanced this idea that our true liberation is not just by freeing ourselves from oppressive groups outside of ourselves, but freeing ourselves from our own self-repression in the way that we try to conform our deeper, more transgressive sexual desires to uh, uh, some sort of societal norm. And that authenticity is identifying those more transgressive desires inside ourselves that we all have, according to them, and learning how to embrace them and expose them and live them out. And so this is why you'll see, for example, at a pride parade, there's she has like a more a competition about who can present the most outlandish presentation of self. Because truly, the more transgressive you are, the more you can buck societal norms, the more free you are and more authentic you are. This is contrasted with Christianity, in which the word authenticity is even etymologically connected to an author or authority, that we are most truly ourselves insofar as we are more closely walking with God, because we are, are the definition of ourselves is sons and daughters of his. And so we understand who we are and more truly become ourselves in a deeper way, the more closely we draw to him. Mm. One of the things parents are just discovering is that the woke initiative is targeting the innocent and destroying family dynamics that in the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, is surprising to many. It doesn't seem to connect with what was generally understand understood to be a rather innocuous movement, just acknowledging the value of African-American lives. Can you talk a bit about the uh, uh, the targeting of, of children and the family? Sure. So innocence, according to the woke, is a form of dominance. And what I mean by that is the rea- that, that there are people who are innocent, of, for example, other sexual lifestyles, that um, perpetuates an idea that there is a norm, that there is a moral norm, normative way of being. And so, the, so for the woke, it's, it's an imperative to corrupt and to expose, you know, you know and, and uh, corrupt that sort of innocence, At, first of all, through exposure, but, you know, but, but, but also by opening the door for them themselves to start living out uh, more transgressive lifestyles. Um, and I think even that has spiritual underpinnings connected to Christ. Christ is the perfect innocent victim and the, and the woke are trying to deify themselves. So they want to claim victimhood for themselves, but also claim his innocence. They can't truly claim his innocence. He's the only perfect and this perfectly innocent being. But you can relatively uh, um, uh, corrupt the innocence in this world that point is a signpost pointing to something to his goodness. And so that's why I think there's a real obsession with corrupting children, um, but also with, with corrupting the family. The family, every revolutionary knows, is one of the biggest obstacles, the family and the faith, to revolution. Because the family teaches us how to suffer well, how to pick up our cross and walk through the world um, without resentment, without rage, and without accusation. And it also forces us to contend with our own struggles so that we can see our need for a savior and also look on one another with greater eyes of mercy. Mm. Now you write in, uh, in your uh, book, Awake, Not Woke, that for centuries, Christians were told to refrain from judging our neighbor's heart, even if it had clearly done something wrong. But somewhere along the road of thinning theology and increasingly demagogic secularism, modern Christianity absorbed and internalized the message that do not judge in particular is synonymous with do not acknowledge that acts can be right or wrong in general. 
are we being assimilated? And can you address this uh, this tendency uh, to just um, resist the temptation to acknowledge when something is wrong uh, in order to perhaps uh, put it right, believing that not judging requires us to do so? Yeah, no, I think this has been a real problem that for decades we've collapsed the distinction between an act and the heart of the, of the actor, the sin and the sinner. So we've been told for, for decades now that if you don't embrace, you know, this sort of action or if you think that this sort of activity is morally a moral wrong, then what you're doing is actually it's not about the action. It's about you're hating another person. So if you don't oppose, if you don't support a marriage, then you are a hater. Um, and love is love wins means that you are embracing, um, you know, alternative uh, sexual lifestyles. Um, and I think that there is a, a soul to us really with this idea that it'll make us more tolerant, more loving people, gentler. And I really believe it's had the exact opposite effect that, you know, the Christian Christians have historically really striven to uh, strove to separate the heart of man from their activity. So if you see someone sinning, you can't excuse what they're doing. You know, I think a historical Christian, um, uh, precept is that you try to excuse their intent. Perhaps they are suffering some wound, I don't know, and it mitigates their culpability. Perhaps they're confused. You know, you strive to not judge their heart. And I think what we've done by eradicating any notion of any measure of behavior is that we've relocated that sort of um, ability to discern right from wrong into the heart of the other. So now we don't know really whether you're you're doing the right, I can judge your action. However, I know you don't support the right movement. You don't have the right belief. And therefore, I know you're on the side of hatred. You're on the side of, of the, you know, the evil side of, of society. The subtitle of your book is A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. How can we turn this narrative around, especially people of faith, without seeming racist or close-minded, which keeps many from responding at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that we have to have a couple of things. I think we have to have clarity about what's happening and not be because it operates so much on confusion, but also intimidation. And I think we have to know not to be understand it well enough to know not to be intimidated by these sorts of tactics. So we have to have clarity and courage. But then I think we have to really, truly understand that all of any activity we do out in the world to combat this has to be an overflow of our interior life of prayer. And that we cannot have any effect on our own scheme other than, you know, this is a spiritual battle and that we have to be armed with with the spiritual grace of God in order to combat it. So we cannot meet rage with rage or injustice with further injustice. Uh, You know, that that, that we have to have a different woe that we walk that is uncompromising. Um, But I I do think that we have to resist it. And and, and it is coming for all of us. And I think that, you know, we we can't assume that we can remain neutral. But this is something that we have to pray about and figure out how we can have the courage and clarity to resist this in our own lives. Absolutely. Once again, the title of the book, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. The short time that we've had a conversation does not reflect the depth uh, that you'll find in the book. And if you want to better understand where the culture is going, where it's coming from, and how we can respond as followers of Jesus, this is a great volume to consider. The book is published by Tan Books, and I suppose it's available wherever you would normally find books. Correct? That's right. That's right. It's then wherever you can find the books, also on our website, theologyhome.com, and on my publisher, Tan Books. Great. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. It was great to be with you. Appreciate Thanks. it very much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll talk about a lot of stuff. We'll take a look at what's happening in Afghanistan now and much more. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend, <laughs> he had nerve enough. 
to go on vacation. I still can't get over it. Anyway, he'll be back on Tuesday. Well, women and girls of Afghanistan have started the dark days under the Taliban. We're being told, according to Ayan Hirsi Ali, what about the 19 million women now sentenced by American foreign policy to a life of darkness under the Taliban? Surely they deserve human rights, too. Do you seriously expect anyone to believe that American diplomacy will make the Taliban treat women fairly, as they've now promised? Is um, is uh, rallying the world remotely like uh, likely to keep Afghan girls in schools or allow women to walk down the streets of Kabul with their faces uncovered? Do you take us for fools, she asks. Uh, from later in the same story, in today's perverse American culture, however, more attention is devoted to the use of preferred gender pronouns than to the plight of women whose most basic rights to education, personal autonomy, the rights to be present in the public space are either removed or under serious threat. What we witnessed this week in Afghanistan, she goes on, is a watershed moment in Western decline. Well, that's a that's a phrase worth pondering, a watershed moment in Western decline. American culture today tells us not to be proud of our country, not to believe in the superiority of American values, not to promote the rights we are afforded by our Constitution so that they can be enjoyed by people around the world. Mm. Unheard, and that's H-E-R-D, unheard. You can find that online if you want to read the rest of her column. The Taliban killed a woman for not wearing a burqa on Tuesday. Interestingly enough, 70 percent of the population in Afghanistan is under 25 That means the majority of young people there have never lived under Taliban rule. And one of the things that struck me was that as the Taliban was entering the country, most of the women didn't have burqas. Now, they would keep their head covers. It's a conservative country, but they didn't have burqas. And this uh, became a major issue because they knew it will be required under the Taliban rule. In other news, General Mike Milley is struggling to give reasonable answers to good and necessary questions. Ed Morrissey on um, General Milley says this. Isn't that the job of the Pentagon to know and understand these situations, especially in the middle of a retreat? It's Milley's uh, core responsibility to know these potential outcomes, even those with smaller odds. This is nothing less than an admission of incompetence, even putting aside the fact that the route began two weeks ago when the Taliban first captured a provincial capital. When military leaders admit that they didn't see a disaster that unfolded before their very eyes, either it's a lie or an admission of utter incompetence. Either way, it's a declaration that it should be attached uh, to a resignation. Now, interestingly, uh, John McCain on the Senate floor some years back, obviously prior to his passing, made some very specific comments about, uh, about the competency, competency of General Mark Milley that are certainly worth revisiting. Rich Lowry says if Milley said something that seriously offended uh, against uh, woke sensibilities, he'd be out in a minute. But fouling up a major military operation just doesn't rate the same way. He wrote on Twitter, a U.K. politician ripped President Biden, who never fought for the colors they fly, referring to the flag, the U.S. flag. MP Tom Tugganot uh, from the U.K. gave a moving speech before the House of Commons that includes this to see their commander in chief call into question the courage of men I fought with to claim that they ran is shameful. Those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have. Foreign Policy magazine, by the way, um, has a interesting look at how to restore U.S. credibility. It's a major lift, by the way.
Well, Christian churches are under great threat as the Taliban takes control of Afghanistan. From that story, according to the, um, that's at redstate.com, according to the uh, Open Doors World Watch List, the most dangerous countries for Christians, Afghanistan ranks number two. That was prior to the Taliban in the uh, in the world. Number two in the world. The Taliban has now taken over the country, making this already dangerous situation even more deadly. Again, according to Open Doors World Watch List of the most dangerous countries for Christians, Afghanistan ranks number two in the world. You might recall um, earlier this week we shared a request from pastors in Afghanistan how we might pray for them. Another story reports the Taliban is killing people in Afghanistan they find with copies of the Bible on their mobile phones. Well, gender surgery has jumped in 2020. Females have their breasts removed, jumped 14 percent. And this is as we're told COVID is slowing elective surgeries. Apparently not all of them. The American Academy of Pediatrics rather has removed a page encouraging FaceTime with infants. Again, the group succumbs to the politics of masks over the science. Stacey Abrams, top staffer, compares the U.S. to the Taliban. A.D. Fields, a political director for Stacey Abrams' voter rights organization, Fair Fight Action, removed her retweet of the Twitter thread after a Washington Free Beacon inquiry. In the post, Michael Herriot, a senior writer for The Root, referred to African-Americans who fled the colonies after fighting for the British as refugees from the American Taliban. Polls show the uh, Newsom recall is within the margin of error. Put together, they show keep uh, up by just 1% over remove. Larry Elder remains out front as the replacement by double digits. Well, President Biden says he did not see a way to withdraw from Afghanistan without chaos ensuing. And he brushes off chaotic Kabul airport scenes as, well, so five days ago. It was actually two days ago. As many as 15,000 Americans are looking to flee Afghanistan, although we've been told by the military we don't have actual numbers. The State Department halted the Trump-era crisis response plan aimed at avoiding Benghazi-style evacuations just months before the Taliban takeover. Now, my understanding is that had not been populated by actual individuals who made up that um, response team. So they... uh, jettisoned the plan, but there was not a team to jettison in place yet. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani, now in the United Arab Emirates, reportedly fled Kabul with $169 million in cash. However, he has denied that report. Now, the individual I mentioned yesterday who stepped up and said, look, I'm here in the country. I am now the official president of the country in the absence of our president who fled and accused him of taking with him one hundred and sixty nine million dollars in U.S. dollars. Um, um, Ashraf Ghani has said, no, I did not leave with the money. So who knows? Most voters at 53 percent say Biden is a weak leader, according to the Washington Free Beacon. And the FBI knew of Hunter Biden's missing laptop as early as December 2019. This is the one most recently revealed to the public as having been taken by Russian uh, operatives to blackmail the president's son. Authoritarianism Part One. The feds plan to require nursing homes to get stuff, uh, rather staff, fully vaccinated or lose federal funding. Authoritarianism Part Two. President Biden directs the Education Secretary to take on GOP governors blocking school mask mandates. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, we're going to talk about the plight of Nigeria's Christians. They are really facing some uh, major pressure there. We'll explain later in the final segment of today's program. Well, the CDC data shows a worrying drop in vaccine efficacy over time. In fact, I was listening to a, a doctor earlier today suggest that if there had been more space between the first and second shot, that efficacy would have been longer. The U.S. plans to offer booster shots next month, but some health experts are wary. Quinnipiac University plans to fine and cut Internet access to unvaccinated students. The punishment continues. Iran is accelerating uranium enrichment to near weapons grade, according to Newsweek. And the Department of Homeland Security announced plans to speed asylum cases. T-Mobile, and that's rather controversial. Is it going to be thorough enough? And so on. Anyway, T-Mobile says hackers stole information on over 40 million customers. So you might want to check that out. Israel, once the model of beating COVID, faces a new surge of infections. Country singer Carrie Underwood is under fire for liking an anti-mask mandate tweet. She just liked it. She didn't do anything else. The Georgia Election Board launched an inquiry into Fulton County election problems. And Governor Cuomo is using his final days as governor to commute and pardon felons, felons rather, including three tied to killings. Some census data cannot be correct. The Constitution requires an actual enumeration of the whole number of persons in each state every 10 years. Well, some have raised concerns that new technologies could allow census data to be manipulated so that individual responses wouldn't remain confidential. Well, to combat this, they've had to come up with um, with a plan Uh, and. the Census Bureau has implemented differential privacy when reporting the publicly available census data. Well, this supposedly provides an actual enumeration at the state level, but injects noise at levels below that to obscure the data. Well, this has led to absurd results such as some census blocks having a negative number of people living in it. Now, this misreporting is troubling because the data in census blocks are what map makers use when drawing new congressional and state legislative districts because of the capacity or, or opacity rather and false numbers involved in the process. It's hard for others to uh, to see how exactly the Census Bureau has manipulated the data. Hmm. Well, a socialist magazine founder fired his staff for socialist organizing. He confessed he felt ownership of what he'd made. <laughs> well, on this day in history, 1848, the New York Herald reports the discovery of gold in California. 1909, the first automobile races are uh, run at the just-opened Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 1934, a plebiscite in Germany approves the vesting of sole executive power in Adolf Hitler. 1976, President Gerald R. Ford wins the Republican presidential nomination at the party's convention in Kansas City. 1982, Soviet cosmonaut Svetlana Savitskaya becomes the second woman to be launched into space. 2014, a video released by Islamic State militants purports to show the beheading of American journalist James Foley as retribution for U.S. airstrikes in Iraq. And 2017, Paul Manafort resigns as campaign chairman for Donald Trump. Well, President Joe Biden thought he might be ending endless wars, but all he accomplished was making the protection of U.S. interests in Afghanistan more costly and more at risk. He also faces three new crises that Americans will have to confront. 
How he addresses them will shape the future of his presidency and America's security. The first crisis is the evacuation of Afghanistan. It's ongoing, but, well, rather precarious. The president uh, said uh, the collapse of Afghanistan was inevitable. Well, it wasn't. Even if he was right, a fighting withdrawal uh, uh, could not have been any less catastrophic. What did Biden plan uh, better to get out of uh, people and equipment? Could he? Why didn't he? Well, the president had convinced himself, despite military and intelligence advice to the contrary, we're learning that defeat was inevitable. He assumed the Taliban would let him make a lightning withdrawal and U.S. forces and civilians would be gone before the country collapsed. Well, he was wrong. That strategy left no time for a methodical withdrawal. The president miscalculated the Taliban had uh, every reason to seek to humiliate the U.S. rather than allow a graceful retreat. Well, now the U.S. faces evacuating Americans, other Westerners and Afghan refugees. The only option is um, through the the Kabul airport, which only has one runway. Uh, where access to the ability, uh, I should say, access to and the ability to use the airspace uh, are only available through the permission of the Taliban. Even if the Taliban permit people, there's likely upward of hundreds, um, a hundred thousand. This will take many days, perhaps weeks, certainly beyond the deadline set initially by the president. There remains the possibility that people will be taken hostage or the Taliban either um, already has or will make demands and ransom for people to leave. The president has to focus right now on getting people out. It's going to be dangerous and perilous activity for the foreseeable future. Crisis number two, transitional or transnational terrorism. I mentioned India yesterday as one example. There's every expectation that Afghanistan will again become a sanctuary for terrorists. After all, the Taliban controls more territory, more weapons and more money than it did on 9-11. Also, the Taliban victory will be a clarion call for Islamist terrorists around the world. Well, in the near future, the U.S. could see a resurgent global terrorist threat with a wide open southern U.S. border. The president will need to take immediate steps to deal with this challenge and or will face another 9-11. And then there's crisis number three, China. The president just gifted Afghanistan to China. The Chinese will have no problem working with the Taliban. Many in the West will... Um, Uh, We'll see this uh, wanting to normalize the Taliban, mitigating our failure by claiming perhaps the Taliban won't be so brutal. We're already witnessing that things have not changed. Well, likely the new Taliban will be in the end, um, will act just like the uh, old Taliban. China won't care. It will partner with the Taliban. It will build an economic corridor to Iran. And as the president lifts sanctions on Iran, China will have a powerful economic corridor it will control. Also, China will access Afghanistan's massive mineral wealth. And further, China will outflank India. We talked a bit about that and Pakistan yesterday. Well, if the president doesn't rise to this challenge, China will control all of South Asia. Bottom line, the Afghan crisis is far from over. The president just made protecting U.S. interests a great deal harder. Well, the Pentagon has uh, was pressed rather on Thursday to explain why the U.S. isn't rescuing Americans outside of the Kabul airport as the British are doing for their citizens. Well, at a press briefing, uh, Jennifer Griffin said General Taylor, British paratroopers are leaving the airport, going into Kabul to rescue and evacuate some of their citizens who are trapped and can't get to the airport because of the Taliban. Why isn't the U.S. doing that? She asked. Well, Major General Hank Taylor, who serves as deputy director of the Joint uh, Staff Regional Operations, replied that the U.S. focus was on securing Hamid Karzai International Airport. 
Well, at this time, our main mission continues to be to secure the airport, to allow those American citizens and other SIVs to come in and to be processed at the airfield, end quote. Well, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby was asked during the same press conference whether he knows how many Americans remain stuck in Afghanistan, and he replied, I don't know. Now, that doesn't mean nobody knows. It means he doesn't know. Let's hope that's the case. He's the only one who isn't privy to that number. Earlier this week, another 1,000 paratroopers were sent to help evacuate U.S. personnel and Afghans who provided assistance during the war. Accessing them outside of Kabul and the rest of the country at this point does not seem to be a priority. Well, U.S. officials are warning the president that his August 31st deadline to withdraw the troops from Afghanistan will be challenging, to say the least. More than 4,000 U.S. troops are on the ground in Kabul, with um, 2,000 more expected to arrive later this week. U.S. officials are privately warning that it's going to be challenging to meet the president's deadline to withdraw the troops from Afghanistan as thousands continue pouring into the country to protect the airport and to help in the mission to evacuate thousands of American citizens and Afghan allies. We're still ramping up, one official told uh, the news media. At this point, there are an estimated 4,000, more than 4,000 U.S. troops on the ground in Kabul, again with 2,000 expected to arrive later this week. President Biden has authorized 6,000 U.S. troops to deploy to the country to assist in the evacuation mission as the Taliban pushes to restore the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the formal name of the country under the Taliban rule before militants were ousted by the U.S. forces in the wake of 9-11 attacks. The attacks on September 11th, 2001, the 20th anniversary of which is approaching, were orchestrated by al-Qaeda while it was being sheltered by the Taliban in Afghanistan. Well, the president adamantly standing by his initial decision to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by the end of the month, outlined the current mission for the U.S. military there, saying it will be short in time, limited in scope and focused on our objectives. Get our people and our allies as quickly and as safely as possible out of the country. Well, meanwhile, the Pentagon on Wednesday also announced that it had deployed the U.S. Air Force unit that can quickly open airfields. That unit, the one, the 621st Contingency Response Wing, arrived in Kabul on Wednesday morning. The same unit has been in Afghanistan just months prior to close down Bagram Air Base and other airfields. Many are questioning why Bagram was allowed to close. It was a much uh, better location for flying out large numbers of people. But that's a moot point now. Defense Secretary Lloyd Lloyd Austin, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, are expected to hold uh, news conferences. Um, It will uh, be their first public appearance. That was uh, actually yesterday uh, to make statements that have since been questioned by critics and observers on both sides of the political aisle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up later in the final segment of today's program. We'll take a look at the plight of Christians in Nigeria. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up in our final segment, Nigeria's um, Christians and the plight they are currently facing. Arnold Almert uh, had this to say about the Cloward Piven immigration agenda that we're seeing under the current administration. He points out that currently two million illegal aliens are scheduled to cross the southern border in the next year with legal impunity, but without vaccinations or COVID-19 tests or lectures from Washington. That's a quote from Victor Davis Hansen. But Arnold Allert says this. In 1966, Columbia University sociologist Richard Andrew Cloward and Francis Fox Piven 
formulated the Cloward-Piven strategy. It was a plan designed to overload the welfare state bureaucracy with demands that were impossible to meet, thereby precipitating crisis and the ultimate collapse of our society and its capitalist system. Now, who on earth in their right mind would want to do that? Well, nothing epitomizes this effort better than an administration that is willfully and effectively eliminated the nation's southwestern border. As Hansen notes, two million illegal aliens, many of whom are uh, carrying COVID-19 through no fault of their own, it's just what's out there, are pouring across the border. For perspective, there are only four cities in the entire nation with populations in excess of two million, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles and Houston. In 2008, former President Barack Obama expressed his intention to fundamentally transform the United States of America. In May of last year, Joe Biden also promised to fundamentally transform the country using the pandemic as his vehicle for doing so. The willfully orchestrated chaos at the border is that transformation on steroids. Again, Allert goes on. Yet it gets even more reprehensible. Despite their so-called commitment to transparency, the administration continues to hide how they are dealing with the record numbers of uh, border crossers. Uh, The immigration uh, reform.com website reveals the Department of Homeland Security has begun flying unaccompanied minors and family units to cities across the United States under the cover of night. Laughlin Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas, is being used as a distribution hub for this um, to. uh, Well, at the cost of American taxpayers, Tucker Carlson obtained emails from a whistleblower revealing instructions from base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Burroughs, not to divulge the Air Force's collaboration in Texas itself. McAllen's uh, Republican mayor, Javier Villabolos, Uh, recently issued a declaration of local disaster. Days later, in its municipal government revealed, there have been more than 7,000 confirmed COVID-positive cases released into the city of 143,000 residents by uh, CBP since mid-February, including more than 1,500 new cases in just the past seven days. Now, again, this is in the context of the, the lockdown and the mandates that we're facing. He goes on. Thus, while the Biden administration is contemplating nationwide mask and vaccine mandates, when they're not busy coercing their equally contemptible allies in business, local and state governments and academia to do the same, the reality cannot be denied. The administration itself may be the foremost super spreader of COVID-19 in the entire nation. And not just COVID-19, despite a record setting 92,000 drug overdose deaths in 2020, the primary driver of which is fentanyl, according to the U.S. Drug Enforcement agency from January to April of 2021, border officials seized nearly 2,400 more pounds of fentanyl than during the same period in 2020. Thus, the same administration facilitating the spread of COVID-19 is equally committing, uh, committed to making 2021 a banner year for Mexican drug cartels and their drug-making Chinese allies by flooding the nation with narcotics and turning an additional tens of thousands of Americans into, well, Addicts. Americans should be clear about what's happening here. Despite record breaking numbers of uh, crossing the border, House uh, squad member Rashida Tlaib stated last month that America must eliminate funding for immigration and customs enforcement, ICE, Customs and Border Protection, CBP, and their parent organization, DHS, Department of Homeland Security. And despite the current onslaught, the administration has left funding unchanged for ICE, CBP, and even ICE. 
uh, has admitted its agents are overwhelmed as uh, those who come across the border are getting past them at the border without any uh, interdiction whatsoever. In short, the administration has precipitated the um, subterfuge of effectively neutering the nation's border control and enforcement agencies while avoiding the political blowback that would arise from completely eliminating them. It doesn't get more transformational than that. The seeds of this undertaking have been sworn for years. In 2013, the Associated Press dropped the term illegal immigrant from its news coverage. Others soon followed suit, and now the majority of the media use terms like undocumented immigrant or migrant to describe illegals. States have given illegal drivers... uh, given a driver's license to those in the country illegally and state college tuition reductions. And in the city of San Francisco, um, they're allowed to vote in school board elections, hundreds upon hundreds of sanctuary cities, counties and states, all in open defiance of federal immigration law, protect illegals, even felons from or with impunity. Moreover, when Texas, which is bearing the lion's share of the onslaught, tried to stop vehicles carrying people on the ground, um, That may spread COVID-19. The administration sued the state to prevent that from happening. In an Orwellian twist, Attorney General Merrick Garland asserted the state was attempting to usurp the federal government's responsibility to enforce immigration laws. To date, no one has asked Garland or anyone else in the administration how abetting the transport of illegal uh, trespassers who might be infected with COVID-19 constitutes the enforcement of immigration law. The purpose was to determine whether or not COVID-19 was traveling with them. That's because it doesn't. And an administration constitutionally required to defend America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, is actively seeking to undermine the federal government's most essential reason for existing. In short, Cloward Piven is alive and well. The reason for this orchestrated invasion is the same reason that animates every... um, Policy, the acquisition and maintenance of power by any means necessary. In addition to open borders, soaring inflation and policies such as defunding the police, making America's energy, making America energy dependent again, and the force feeding of the transgender agenda and critical race theory to children uh, in schools. uh, Unions are now indicating that schools might not open again this year becoming increasingly untenable for a majority of American electorate. Could importing millions uh, and simultaneously uh, tying the so-called infrastructure package to mass amnesty for illegal aliens via budget reconciliation be the solution to the potential problem of 2022, the midterm elections? Well, Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican out of Tennessee, said in a statement that the transformation, transportation rather of migrants taking place in that state is occurring in the dead of night without the knowledge or permission of the communities involved. Why the subterfuge and what about states' rights, especially when they're becoming, um, when they become rather what amounts to administration dumping grounds for those who may be carrying a dread disease for which we are all being mandated to ward against. In 1993, Daniel Patrick Moynihan coined the term defining deviancy down, welcoming a population nearly the size of Houston into the nation in a single year amidst a pandemic. The same administration insists rather is intensifying is the epitome of deviancy, courtesy of an administration fully embracing the Cloward Piven strategy. At what point does the deviancy become treason? Well, it's a rather interesting um, article raising some interesting questions we won't address at this time. 
Earlier this week, uh, Democrats in the U.S. House uh, introduced H.R. 4. It is uh, deceptively named the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would prevent states from passing essential election security reforms and create a pathway for federal bureaucrats to take over state elections. That wasn't how they were designed to function in the U.S. Well, K. Cole James released a statement on Tuesday in response to this proposal's introduction, making the point that free and fair elections are critical to the health of our republic. It should be easy to vote and hard to cheat. Unfortunately, with this proposal, it would rather turn this principle on its head and sacrifice one of our most cherished and hard-fought rights in order to gain more political power. H.R. 4 is the latest iteration of an election takeover designed to remove fundamental election safeguards and open opportunities for cheaters to manipulate election results in their favor. The bill would essentially require every state to get approval of partisan attorneys in the Biden administration before implementing any change to their voting laws or practices. We must not be fooled by legislation cloaked with the euphemistic name H.R. 4 does not honor the legacy of the late congressman and civil rights leader, nor the countless others who sacrificed so much to have their votes count. Instead, H.R. 4 would make it easier for those intent on committing fraud to cancel out the votes of law-abiding Americans by preventing states from implementing common-sense voter integrity laws and practices. Well, she recently released a video calling out... um, This attempt to weaken the election security, you can find that at the Heritage website. I would encourage you uh, to do so. We'll be talking in more detail about the particulars of this legislation that would change um, wholesale how elections are conducted and who makes decisions about elections all across the fruited plain. Coming up, we're going to talk about the plight of Nigeria's Christians. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may have heard in the last few days, we've focused our attention on the struggles of believers in various places around the world. We've looked at Afghanistan. We talked a little bit about what's happening in Haiti among people in general. And I wanted to spend just a moment at the end of the program today to Take a look at the plight of Nigeria's Christians. As we've been um, discussing, we are members of one body. So there's a connection that um, we enjoy because of what Christ has done for us. We share that common heritage. And so as we are praying for the body of Christ, maybe that's our local church, the church in our particular community, our state, our country. Uh, we also remember those who live uh, in faraway places, many of whom are experiencing persecution. Well, we've, we have been following for some time the fact that the um, uh, Christians have been under siege by Fulani militias and Islamic terrorists in Nigeria, but uh, they found little help from their government. We'll explain that in just a few moments. And the question that's being asked is, will the State Department, the U.S. State Department, step up? I would love to see that happen But short of that, I think there's a role that you and I can play as believers as we bring our brothers and sisters in Christ before the throne of grace. Well, the report says that Nigeria's long plague of jihadist violence and mayhem has reached new heights there. Earlier in the month, armed bands of ethnic Fulani herdsmen assaulted the mainly Christian areas along the border of the plateau and Kaduna states of central Nigeria. Units of several hundred Muslim Fulani militiamen, along with their herds, entered villages along the war cries of Alawa Akbar. They fired AK assault rifles randomly through the streets and into homes, reportedly killing scores of civilians. Now, these are in Christian communities and burning hundreds of homes and acres of surrounding cropland. 
One such attack, according to local journalists, occurred last week around Mianjo, 12 miles west of Jos, the plateau's capital. It lasted about five hours. It left dozens of Christians dead, more wounded, including a pastor, Pastor Amadu Musa, a Fulani convert. So he had been Fulani, had come to faith in Christ, as well as thousands who have been displaced. Neighborhood watch volunteers, misleadingly called vigilantes, attempted to defend their community with slingshots and rifles, but were no match for the heavily armed Fulani jihadists. The Joss-based 3rd Army Division showed up only afterward to cynically report the invasion as a communal clash. Local human rights lawyer Solomon Daliop, uh, he made an often heard allegation that local Christians make about the military. The military, and I'm quoting, has confirmed our fears that they have uh, a hand in this particular uh, in this particularly as they have gone ahead to arrest the natives who are protecting their homes while more killings and destruction continued for three days in this particular assault. Well, these areas and many others have come under, re- under repeated attack by armed nomadic members of the Fulani Muslim ethno-religious group. But the strength of force is new. The attacks have proliferated in an environment of impunity under President um, Mumadu Buhari, the son of a Fulani Muslim chieftain. Well, his persistent failure to protect these civilians and to prosecute their attackers reveals a government that's not simply lacking capacity. Rather, at six years into the president's tenure, this violence appears to have the state's tacit approval and serves a Buhari political priority. Again, President Buhari. Fulani militias are just one source of mayhem in Nigeria today. Alongside notorious terrorist groups and criminal kidnappers, Boko Haram uh, garnered international headlines with the first mass kidnapping of schoolchildren, you might recall, the enslavement of Christian girls and ISIS-like beheadings of infidels or Christians. It is widely recognized that in recent years, the Fulani uh, militants have surpassed Boko Haram as the most dangerous threat to Nigeria's Christians. Accounts of Fulani herder attacks and growing extremism have come from an all-party parliamentary group in Great Britain, from the Pontifical Foundation Aid to the Church in Need, and from the Global Terrorism Database established by the Department of Homeland Security and housed at the University of Maryland. The Nigerian-based International Society of Civil Liberties and the Rule of Law uh, documented in a mid-year report that jihadist Fulani herders were responsible for 1,900 of the 3,400 Christians killed in that country in the first half of this year. The remainder, uh, inter-society reports, were killed by ISIS-affiliated and other Islamist terrorists, their security force collaborators, and the bandits who will kidnap, rape, and kill any Nigerian. Inter-society further finds that Fulani militias now target Christian areas in all six Nigerian regions. So they are the focus of this effort. Christian communities in Nigeria's north and middle belt are being incrementally driven out as a result. Nigeria Observer and journalist Douglas Burton said in an email of similar atrocities last month in southern Kaduna in Zangon and another area. Our reporters say 90% of Atyap tribe villages there are abandoned. The uh, Christians or followers of African traditional religions there simply do not have a home. And again, as we um, 
consider the plight of believers around the globe. These are just one of many groups who are suffering in particular, the Afghan Christians who are stranded there. We know that the U.S. government is not in a position, we're being told, to seek out those who want to leave the country. They are being told to either shelter in place until there's more information or to make their way to the airport at their own risk. In either case, in any case, this is not a safe prospect for those who feel that they are called to leave the country at this time. And we have such a tremendous opportunity to remember those who suffer and are persecuted because they are followers of Jesus. When I read these stories and I hear about a pastor like uh, the pastor I, whose name I mentioned just a few moments ago, Pastor Amadu Musa, who was a Fulani convert, um, who was uh, murdered in all of this that's happening. I think about my own pastor. I think about men who serve in the church, who have been called by God to minister to congregations. In this case, they're house churches or small uh, congregations. Uh, and yet their lives are taken as so many lives have ended because of their trust in Christ and their willingness to lay their lives down for the sake of others. And I feel compelled to pray for them, to remember them. In fact, the other day I woke up, uh, my alarm went off in the morning and the first thing that came to mind was what was happening in Afghanistan. And I had a, it wasn't a visual, but it was like a vision of uh, mothers trying to protect their children and fathers worrying about their daughters and whether or not, um, there was going to be a knock at the door and their 12 year old daughters or their 20 year old daughters were going to be carried away to be made brides of the Taliban and just so much going on in the world that is of great concern. But I try to put it into perspective and remember that we may not have access to the white house. We may not be able to testify before Congress. The UN is probably not interested in what I have to say, but we have access to the throne of grace, the God of the universe who the word says spoke everything that we uh, enjoy into existence has invited us to come before him personally at any time. And in fact, says we can pray without ceasing and we can bring these concerns before him and he will hear us when we come humbly before him in the name of his son in whom we put our trust. We have access to the greatest authority the world has ever known. And so I hope we're taking full advantage of that opportunity on behalf of believers who are suffering. Well, I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend is enjoying a vacation, so he'll be back on Tuesday next week. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And do remember to pray for the persecuted church, whether that's in Afghanistan or in Nigeria, wherever they are in the world. One day we're going to spend eternity shoulder to shoulder with one another in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's remember them as if we, too, were suffering. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.